Roots Racing Culture is made possible in part by the contributions to PBS Utah from listeners like you. Thank you. Hey everybody, you're listening to Roots, Race, and Culture, a new podcast from PBS Utah. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll subscribe, leave us a review, and share with your friends. All right, now let's get this thing started. Hey everyone, and welcome to Roots, Race, and Culture, a new show on PBS Utah where we bring you into candid conversations about shared cultural experiences. My name is Lonzo Liggins. Hello, I'm Daner Gerald. According to Dr. Mia Moody Ramirez, in a recent issue of Health Magazine, cultural appropriation is the practice of using or taking something from another culture without giving proper recognition or respect to that culture. And quite often, cultural appropriation gets confused with cultural appreciation. To help us navigate these murky waters, we've invited a couple of experts in the field. Yes, indeed we have. We have two lovely guests here. Erica George to my left, could you introduce yourself? Good evening, I'm Erica George. I'm the Samuel D. Thurman Professor of Law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law. And I also have the honor of directing the Tanner Humanities Center. And in that capacity, we do a lot of work with culture, with appreciating it, with having conversations about how it's appropriated, but mostly exposing people to different forms of art, literature, um, cultural forms in different contexts so that we can better appreciate. Yeah, and you're the first African-American law professor there, right? I am, in fact, yes. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. you. Yeah, that is great. And to my right, we have Paisley. I'm I'm not going to say, I'm going to say this right. Paisley Rechtal. That's correct. Thank you very much. Norwegian. I'm half Chinese and half Norwegian, since I got the last name. That's a little tough. Um, I'm Paisley Rechtal. I'm a distinguished professor at the University of Utah. I'm Utah's Poet Laureate, and I actually wrote a book called called appropriate or appropriate a provocation. So it's all about cultural appropriation in literature and the arts and what are the various practices that go into appropriation. This is a great book actually, I had a chance to read it and I'm gonna love getting into the discussion about the book. You know, it's funny, this definition of cultural appropriation from Mia Moody Ramirez, how do you two stand on that? that? Is that pretty accurate? As far as that's concerned, we'll start with you. What do you mean by accurate exactly? The ways in which you, you opened the show? I mean, I think th- I think that it is accurate in the sense that we have so many different kinds and types of activities that fall under the category of appropriation. Mm-hmm. Some we accept and in fact we encourage each other to do. Uh, and others we really revile and are angry by when we see them. So the question is like, why, why do we accept some practices of appropriation and why do we reject others? Mm-hmm. Um, and the line between appreciation and appropriation is sometimes almost individual by individual, um, the kind of ethics that we have to develop as artists and as consumers in the world mean that there is no hard line, uh, consistent ways of defining what is harmful appropriation for a lot of people. But that said, there's two issues in appropriation. One is, can you do it? And the other is, should you do it? Um, mm-hmm. Because of course, we're thinking about a very long history in which lots of cultures have gone in, colonized, and taken uh, cultural and sacred artifacts from other cultures and made money off of it and displaying it in their museums Mm. or in their artists reproducing these as motifs and subjects in their own art. Um, And those are harmful um, when we think about the long legacy of colonialism and racism as it still affects us all. Right. Mm, Absolutely. What about you, Erica? What were your thoughts on that? I, I actually appreciated the 
divide, though we understand there's some blur between, there is appreciation. And with that, we are connoting some form of respect for a culture mm -hmm. um, versus appropriation, which just feels and is much more extractive. Mm -hmm. It's about enriching oneself or enriching one culture at perhaps the expense of another, not crediting um, and undermining. So there are ways in which the appropriative aspect of things is quite connected to how am I drawing benefit economically, mm -hmm. um, status-wise, mm -hmm. something that is in vogue or cachet, cashing in on the creativity of another. Um, the other hat I wear as a lawyer. There's mm -hmm. a regime of intellectual property protection because we value the intangible property of creativity. We want to encourage Absolutely. it. Yes. Um, but we also don't want to say you cannot use. We also have things like fair use. Right. Um, are we sampling music? If so, are we maybe introducing that music to new audiences may not have ever known what a Miles yeah. um, Davis right, horn right. riff would be? So navigating that, um, what I appreciate about it, Paisley's work is that she asked nuanced questions. Should you do it? Can you do it? Of course you can do anything, but why are you doing this? And, what's and is the it the right thing to do? Yeah. You know, it's funny because Dana and I, we both have our own, we've had lengthy chats about cultural appropriation. Yeah. And I see it as more of a music thing. He sees it's more of a clothing and hairstyle thing. Mm -hmm. Like with me, when I think of cultural appropriation, I think of music. Like I think mm -hmm. of old rhythm and blues. Right. You know, when I, people, when they think of rock and roll, they think of Elvis Presley, they think of the Rolling Stones, they think of the Beatles. But there's another element to that. You know, I used to study the history of rock and roll. And there's these other artists. For example, I'm gonna show you a picture of some artists right now that most people don't really know. Oh. So, see, to the left, there's mm -hmm. uh, Big Mama Thornton and there's yeah. Louis George. A lot of people don't know who they are. But Big Mama Thornton, she was the, uh, the, the person who made the song Hound Dog really popular. Mm -hmm. Louis Jordan is the one who helped to fuse jazz and blues and bring that together. Now, Elvis Presley, right. the Beatles, Rolling Stones, they didn't know exactly who those guys were, right? right but right. we don't know who they are. So the credit's kind of been stripped and those guys didn't make as much money. They were kind of, you know, left in the cold when right. it came to the actual wealth of the music. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it's and, and look, I'm not bagging Elvis Presley. I'm not bagging the Rolling Stones. They, I think, were appreciating the culture. It was the record labels that were kind of just knocking the other old black artists off to the side. But the problem with it is that regardless, those artists got left left out in the cold. And and I think when it comes to cultural appropriation, that can be the ultimate damage of it. That's one of them. So. That's definitely one of them because there's always that economic argument and that economic issue. One of the things, going back to something Erica said, is that we're all encouraged to appropriate. I mean, we think we there are some people who are appropriating and other people who are appropriated, but the reality mm -hmm. is that we're all doing it. And when we're talking about like the loss of Big Mama Thornton's um, you know, economic power in that market, which is terrible. There's a sort of flip side to it, which is that there's a younger artist who's also sampling and using other people who might have, like the Rolling Stones, and turning it into their own art. Right. So one of the things that we're in risking- In the case of hip hop. In like, the case of hip hop, exactly. And so one of the, the, the risks that we have of sort of saying like appropriation is always wrong is that 
we don't understand that you can also appropriate the appropriators and mm -hmm. you can turn something that usually was maybe a colonial art form or something that absolutely took advantage of certain communities. You can turn that into a powerful critique back. Mm. Um, and, and to a certain extent, that's kind of what you want to have in that openness. This sort of, if one person appropriates negatively, one can, person can appropriate positively and actually open up and widen that conversation even globally. Hip hop, for example, is not just an American art form, though of course it was born and raised in America. There are global hip hop artists who see some of their own racial or ethnic or political struggles as aligned with American hip hop artists yeah. and have taken those art forms and sort of said, we're part of this too, we're part of this conversation. So you lose something economically for sure, mm. but you also gain something politically transnationally and transcommunally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, so K-pop, Yes, mm. which has been this powerful cultural and political movement. I mm -hmm. think it was K-pop fans that bought the tickets or booked up tickets for a particular political event mm -hmm. in order to alter um, what the composition of that audience was or whether there was an audience. So there is something about, I, I, I wonder if that, is that cultural appropriation or is that recreation and sharing and solidarity work? That's solidarity work. And I think that's a great distinction to make. Again, like sometimes we just lump all of these different activities under like the same name. Going back to Korea for a moment, I used to live in Korea mm -hmm. and it was in the nineties and, um, um, they, you know, K-pop was sort of coming to its feet. And one of the things that I found really disturbing was a lot of these young bands were trying to take on American yeah. styles. Uh -huh. And there were a couple of bands that actually dressed up as, as if they were African-American. It was like a minstrel show. With blackface? With blackface, oh. right? And that's a perfect <laughs> example of cultural appropriation mm. in its worst, most negative form. This isn't about solidarity work. This isn't yeah. about expanding or having a global conversation. This is about performing ideas of race. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we're thinking about, you know, what, what turns something from appreciation to appropriation, it's this collapse of the racial identity means something as a kind of performative act itself. This is what it means to be black. This is what it means to be Asian. Yeah. So for instance, when Katy Perry gets up and she decides to sing one of her big songs unconditionally, dressed as a geisha, mm -hmm. I mean, there's no reason for her to do that except to sort of plug into this stereotype of Asian women as subservient, docile, and suicidal lovers wow. of white men, wow. right? And so it's this collapse of race means this particular kind of thing. So they're not just playing the music, they're playing the race and a stereotype of the race. Yeah, wow. and, and you know, I, I think there's another side of it. You know, not everyone's an artist, right? Not right. everyone has that. But for example, what you wear, your hairstyle, that sort of thing, and even down to like the kind of car you drive can be associated with those exactly. sort of things. But you know, I, I, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they said they were in Africa, this blonde lady from America, and someone had gifted her, um, it wasn't a sari, but it was- Like uh, a kente some, cloth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. some clothes, actually it was from India. Oh, okay, yeah, and, sorry. And, mm -hmm. and, the silver kameez probably. Yes. Yeah, sorry. that makes yeah. sense. Yes, yes. And so when she wore it, people were saying, well, what are you doing with that? But I'm sitting here thinking, mm. well, it was a gift. Where was right. she wearing it, though? In well, the US it was probably or when in... she was back in the United States. Oh, okay. She... Because I've spent a lot of time in India, and I actually felt out of place if I didn't wear a silver kameez. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Right. It would be inappropriate not to. If I go into a mosque, it would be inappropriate not to cover exactly. my head. Though right, I'm right. 
not culturally appreciating, that's, I don't even know if I'm assimilating, it's a gesture towards respect exactly. in that cultural context. Well, and they and also, appreciate it when you're feeding their economy yeah. as well, right? Because yeah. if you're not buying their stuff, then that's, that's a big not part of tourism, out, right? It's a huge part of tourism. If you start saying, I want to buy this because you know it's culturally appropriating, then it becomes a situation where you're damaging them as opposed to helping them. Then well, it's there's becoming... a complete difference between somebody offering their goods and you know gifts for sale, for wearing, and just sort of saying this this would be you know we want you to do this versus right. like sneaking around and like maybe going into a sacred ceremony and then like you know taking pictures mm. of it or trying to wear something like that. And I think that's really important because when we're we're thinking about, um, again, the idea of performing a race, there's nothing that requires me. If I put on, and I've lived in Japan, you know, I've worn yukatas and kimonos. There's nothing that makes you have to perform being an idea of Japanese. You can mm. wear the clothing without actually um, you know, burlesquing the culture. Right, right. And I think that that's what you know, a lot of people forget. And so, so people think, oh, I'm just gonna wear this chong sam and now it makes me an Asian woman. Like, that's not what happens. <laughs> you just put on a dress, <laughs> right? right? Well, you know, I, one, one of the biggest mistakes that I regret in my life, when I worked at Disney World, Epcot Center has oh, all of these oh, different yeah. shops from around the world, mm -hmm. and I saw the flyest silk suit there. I put it on, and I <laughs> felt like a million bucks, and I was like, oh, I'll come back and get it later. But I could never find it again. Oh, no. I was so <laughs> sad. But <laughs> we also have a video you want to introduce. <laughs> That's a funny side. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, there's a quote from your book that I wanted to read, because I want to show you guys a video. It's from an Apache woman who's mm -hmm. now a student at uh, Utah State University. But I think this quote in the book will segue perfectly into it. The quote is, it's one thing to buy and display a Berber basket purchased during a trip to Morocco. That's a form of cultural appreciation for an object the Berbers gave explicit permission to sell. It's another thing entirely to secretly photograph a sacred Hopi ritual and publish it in a book of photos under your own name. This is no longer cultural influence or admiration, but theft. And this theft also returns us to the problem of how certain artists and institutions have materially profited from the cultural products of other communities. Mm. And I think this is a perfect segue into this because it also does some emotional and cultural damage yeah. to no. some of the people who are in particular on these reservations. So can we play that video? Dagodeshi Shelby James Gunsay, San Carlos Apache Inchli. Hello, my name is Shelby James and I'm from the San Carlos Apache tribe in San Carlos, Arizona. I am currently a student here at Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I grew up my entire life on my reservation, and it wasn't until I left home to come to school that I realized that I was no longer part of a majority, but I was part of a very small minority. The Native people here have a small representation, and I feel like throughout America, most people see Native American culture only from what's being portrayed in the media. And with that comes along with my exposure of racism and cultural appropriation. I've seen so many people wear Native American regalia as a costume, as a prop, as an accessory, as an aesthetic. And for me, that just demeans who I am as a Native American person, as an indigenous woman, because my identity has been reduced to a $20 costume. With that brings in the stereotypes of what Native American people or indigenous people are represented as. Native American women have been sexualized throughout all of history. And the most popular would be Pocahontas, who was a child. And she's seen as beautiful, as a princess. And when in real life, she was one of our first missing murdered indigenous women. And for Native American people, 
it hurts knowing that most of our country still sees us as something that can be sexualized, something that is demeaned into what people say honor us. But honoring us can be found in different ways, but it doesn't have to be found in dressing as us, trying to be us, because it hurts to know that someone can dress up as a Native American and take it off whenever they feel like it. I carry around my identity 24-7. I can't take that off. And it feels less empowering when you see people use these aesthetics as a way to identify you as. And that's something that I hope we can change soon in the future. Wow. Powerful, passion. That was very powerful. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah. What do you think, Paisley? I mean, I think she's completely right. <laughs> I, again, there's no question about that to me because we were sort of joking before about sort of the ways in which people even appropriate Cinco de Mayo, which is this, that they turn it into a kind of cartoon. And the ways in which, especially Native women, have been sexualized, and certainly there's a, a tremendous, you know, history of genocide that is continuing on today with what's happening with Native women. And so to take unthinkingly um, these objects and artifacts from other cultures or to try to dress up as, you know, something that you want to perform or to imagine yourself as aligned with, I think we have to be able to, to say, where are we different? You know, and, and respect those differences too, you know, because, you know, all of these objects and items that we're attached to have historical meaning and value. Mm. And oftentimes when we, we, we move into cultural, you know, pro, you know, appropriation, it's because we're not actually paying attention to the historical meanings of um, the people who have these items, where these items, who they are. Um, and this isn't just dress up, you know, right. it is really, it's a very powerful and sad story um, to talk about. Yeah. What really um, got me in her expression was the, I don't take this off. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This is something yeah. that I am embodying right. and others are extracting and reinventing in ways that are not consonant with the truth that she understand and knows about Pocahontas as the first missing and murdered indigenous mm -hmm. woman, right? But we glorify that there's a wonderful Disney cartoon, right. um, but there are deeper histories and stories that she lives and knows. And to see that played back with a dissonance that is disrespectful captures the injury. And I heard that in her voice. And I think when um, one is in conversation with people who haven't had to think about the consequences of an appropriation or what is the real injury here or the harm, we've talked about the economic mm -hmm. um, extraction, but there is an emotional yes. impact as well that yeah. I thought was very clear and, in her. And I, th I think the problem that people have is they don't know the difference a lot of times. They don't understand what they're doing. There's a certain ignorance when it comes to this topic and it's been traditionally done this way and it seems like it's not a big deal. But to me, what you guys are doing is important because it's, the difference is really education in my mind. Like mm -hmm. if you oh, are, completely. if you're able to explain what this garment that you're wearing means or the symbolism or the traditions behind it, when mm -hmm. someone asks you, then you're wearing it with appreciation because you're using it as, as an opportunity to teach about a culture. At least that's mm -hmm. how I see it in Do my mind. Do you get pushback from white students or other students who say, look, this is too much. I'm just right? having fun, this, this right? Well, what's right. the big so, deal so, here? So, so, <laughs> yeah. This is the thing. I mean, when I started writing the book about appropriation, you know, I think one of the things that commonly is said by certain white students is the human imagination is free and it's not. 
Um, I, I always have to explain that, you know, we might all share very similar emotions, jealousy, love, rage, you know, desire, but we're only able to express them in particular ways based to a certain extent on the ways that we've been socialized and historicized into very particular bodies. Mm. You know, for example, the whole thing about Will Smith's slap and mm. the whole thing about like, you know, this plays into a stereotype of angry black men who get violent, right? Right, right. You know, the, the, the disappointment that I was reading from some think pieces sort of saying, like, you can't express your anger this kind of way. Mm -hmm. But that's what I'm talking about, which is like, we can all express and feel anger, but we can't express them in the same ways because of racial stereotypes, the ways in which historically we've been imagined. Right. And when we are ourselves imagining our own bodies, we are also constructs of history and society. Right. And so there's nothing really free about this. So when people push back and say, well, I should be able to do this because, hey, I'm just, you know, what, what's the big deal? The big deal is you just don't know your history. Right, right. Yeah, there we go, that's free. it. I, I have to <clears> jump <throat> in and talk about um, my classmate, Katanji Brown-Jackson. We mm -hmm. were in law school together. I don't know if you watched the confirmation hearings. This is an African-American woman, very accomplished lawyer who wears her hair natural and dreads. Right. Um, just take 13 hours of questioning and abuse no anger. Right. Yeah. She didn't get to pull a Brett Kavanaugh. Right. So there are right. there guardrails and constraints around how a particularly embodied person has the liberty, freedom to express the full range of human emotion. And I think oh, that's what I, when I think about what race is, in some ways it's like, you know, it's, it's a series of choices that get made on almost a minute to minute basis based on who you're speaking to and who you're around. Right, I right. get to be more this or less this depending yeah. on who I'm with. Do you guys have any uh, parting words for us that you'd like to share about this topic? Well, I do want to continue to invite people to explore and appreciate other cultures. I think that's how we come to understand the commonalities that we share as humans and appreciate the differences. So um, respect, if we ground what we're doing in a true spirit of respect and inquiry and asking and engaging, um, I think there are ways that we can be better, do better, and certainly continuing to understand and appreciate other cultures is something that as an educator, I'm committed to doing. Perfect. Paisley, we're gonna keep you around. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna wrap this show up. We're gonna talk more about this on the podcast. So we're gonna hear more of your words of wisdom. We'll get back to this conversation on roots, race, and culture in just a moment. PBS Utah is also home to other dynamic podcasts. More than half covers some of the most challenging issues facing women in Utah and how it takes all of us to make change happen. Here's a clip from the episode, A Separate Space. I don't think a lot of people realize that it's just not common for people of color, especially women of color, to see themselves in the stories that, you know, we're reading. Subscribe to More Than Half wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Roots, Race, and Culture from PBS Utah. So we're back here with Paisley Rectal. We're going to start talking a little bit more about your book, Appropriate or Appropriate, either way. Either you know, way. Either way, you can say either way. You know? <laughs> it's funny because I was going through this and, and, and there's a lot. You don't just talk about literature. You talk about art. You talk about music. You, you, you talk about it all. You know, and I, I mean, you even mentioned... Graceland, the, the Paul Simon yes. album. I was like, oh no, she's going after Paul Simon. But, it's, <laughs> but you made some good points about it though. Um, I wanna talk about that in a second, but I wanted to find out what 
when you mentioned cultural appropriation in two categories, subject appropriation and content appropriation. Could you break that down a little bit for us? Yes, actually there's many different forms of appropriation, but um, from adaptation, which is when you're taking a text that we might already know or an art form we already know, and then sort of adapting it and telling a new story. And so that's part of the pleasure of that. You can actually see, for example, Romeo and Juliet is being redone as uh, from a trans perspective in Brazil as a TV show. And that's a form of adaptation. Mm. Subject appropriation, content appropriation, or motif appropriation, this is when we get into sort of our fine grain thing, things. Um, so motif appropriation is where you're taking elements of an artist's work and uh, readapting, reusing it for your own purposes. So if I rewrite, um, if I write a poem that's a pantoum or a villanelle, say, which comes out of Malaysia or France, that's a form of motif appropriation. Uh, if I rewrite a fairy tale or a myth from another culture, that's motif appropriation too. Mm. But if I'm writing in subject or content appropriation, that's where I'm starting to think uh, about writing from the viewpoint of someone outside my own identity, uh, someone from a very different culture or someone from a potentially different race as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm writing about their experiences or I'm maybe you know using their own voice mm -hmm. to tell their story. <clears throat> now, are any of those, <clears throat> excuse me, are any of those appropriate or do you feel like they're all off the off the table. Well, that's a great question because technically they can all be appropriate. You know, being uh, an appropriator in, in art doesn't require that you perform any racist kinds of stereotypes. It doesn't even require that you uh, materially benefit from this. You could give all the money away to somebody else. Mm. But oftentimes, some of these um, appropriations become harmful because the artist hasn't really thought through some of the ways in which they are, you know, writing about these cultures or imagining these cultures and that they might fall into very well-worn stereotypical tropes right. or you know they basically hide the fact that there's in fact this kind of cultural influence mm. and they take all that money and that attention for themselves I think it's and there's times where I feel like especially with young people cultural appropriation is confused Mm -hmm. Like they, 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 they don't actually understand what it is. It's like anything you do, oh, that's cultural appropriation. Oh, oh that's right. cultural appropriation. It's a lack of education with it. And I, I was reading this, uh, this article where they were talking about Kim Kardashian wearing a Notorious B.I.G. shirt, just mm. appreciating the Notorious B.I.G. And I think what comes to my mind is where is it that cultural appropriation gets just completely blurred where people don't understand that there's actually a specific way of, of, of appreciating culture and a specific way of appropriating culture. Let me just jump in there. I, I think some of that also has to do with what the younger generation are growing up with, like memes and mm. this constant sense of like posting or new ideas and, and, and mashups and these sort of things. Because the, in the digital world, mm. it's, it's so quick and easy to take a little bit of this and mix it with that and oh, you have mm. something new and it's okay. So that's, I think, why the lines are so blurry and confusing to them, but. I think that's a great point. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's, I mean, I think the digital space makes people more likely to, as you say, cut and paste and mix and match and put yeah. things together. But at the same time, it's made us open to a world of judgment mm -hmm. that we haven't had before, where people can make a mistake and it's amplified oh, yeah. tremendously. <laughs> and I think yeah. that that is one of the reasons also why people are so, at the same time that they're mixing and matching and mashing and appropriating wildly in their artistic lives, they're also terrified of the ways in which people have to stay in their lanes. But of yeah. course, when we're trying to talk about 
staying in our lanes. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really think about your life, there's very few lanes that you're not crossing over. We're not yeah. really only one thing. Especially in American culture. Especially yeah. in American culture. And we're encouraged to appropriate in so many ways, you know, whether yeah. it's just consuming products that we like or, you know, w w watching artists that we love perform and they're, you know, referring back to other artists. I mean, part of art is this amazing and just constantly evolving conversation. That's what makes art special, not it's only this person ever said this one thing, but actually you're listening to a confluence of voices. That's mm. what music is. That's what art is. Well, I, always, yeah. I, I rarely listen to the radio, but I remember a little while back flipping through stations and I got to a country station and uh, there's some old school country music that I like. You know, mm. I grew up in Texas, but I'm listening to it and I was like, this sounds like hip hop. It does. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they, what they happened to country yes. music? Yes. <laughs> it's blended into the take. Well, in Little Nas X, actually, I mean, he does a, you know, he, yes. he hits it with a country song that he actually makes like a black queer kind of anthem. Right. You know, there's a wonderful podcast called That Ain't Country by a guy named Harry Kundry, where he's like tracing the roots of country music via African-American influences. So wow. we have this idea that in some ways these art forms were, we think we know what they look like, but they've always been blended at their sources. Yeah. And, but, but blended's been good though. Like there's, mm -hmm. when you, Elvis Presley's good, mm -hmm. you know? Beatles are great, Rolling Stones are great. There's a lot of good stuff that can yeah. come from that. I don't think there's anything wrong with borrowing styles or, I mean, that's how music has been ultimately evolving. created. It's, it's, always, it's always evolved <laughs> that way. And, but you know, in your book, you were talking about Paul Simon's Graceland. And because I want you to elaborate that on that, because that really plays into what I'm talking about, which is where you can create something really great, which is what Paul Simon did he with did. that album. He, yeah. he brought in those South African influences and he right. made this amazing album. I love the song Diamond on the Soles of Her Shoes. Mm -hmm. But there was a, a flip side to that. Would you, would you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, for me, Graceland is one of those perfect examples of how it can be great and bad pretty much at the exact same time. So <laughs> Graceland is this amazing album. I played and played and played it all the time in college. And he brings in, and he was very open about bringing in these South African artists who were very big in their own country at that time. They're well-known musicians. Mm. And he's like, you know, giving full credit and made sure that when he went on tour, he was like, they're going to get first-class treatment. They're going to get all of the, the same things that I get. But the problem is that once it hit the West, those names dropped out of the picture and oh. he still got the lion's share of the profits, the attention, all that sort of stuff. And he was like, you know, I'm doing this in part to, to pay attention to apartheid in South Africa, to give these artists an opportunity to be heard also in a wider context. But, you know, even people who were very pro, you know, def defeating apartheid were saying, you actually violated a treaty that said you're not going to go into South Africa and, you know, perform and do anything and bring any sort of money into this economy in order to stop apartheid. So there's a lot of, you know, mm. little issues on the side, I shouldn't say little issues, but big issues on the side of making Graceland, which is, did he still get more attention? Did he violate a treaty that actually maybe if he'd stuck you know, outside of South Africa might have been more powerful in changing apartheid uh, earlier, stopping it. Um, wow. So there's, you know, that's the thing. We have this amazing piece of art and we have artists who worked with him, some of them who are very divided about that. They'll say, this was a great experience for me. This did everything I wanted it to and others who are still bitter about it to this day. Wow. Is it possible to appropriate white culture? Oh, yes. So, because, I mean, we're talking a lot about minority cultures and stuff like that, but, I mean, white people would say, hey, look, you guys are taking our culture. You guys are, <laughs> you know, 
Why not what is an example of that? I yeah. want to hear an example of what you think is appropriating white Western culture or something along those lines. Well, I lived in Asia um, a number of years. And so the appropriation of white culture, European culture is kind of everywhere um, from the use of American or French on different signs. Uh, French bakeries are huge in <laughs> Japan wow. and in Korea. As a, And the, the, the Francophilia is enormous in Asia. There's I mean, the whole shows that you would watch where the plot line was, can I get to Paris? I mean, there's a fascination with the culture. Um, obviously, they wear Western dress just the way that we wear Western dress. And they also right. wear, you know, more traditional um, dress for themselves, too. And so they've been appropriating white Western culture for ages. And, you know, so they have a very different relationship to it. Now, we might in the West say, well, that's simply because they have been disempowered. But that's not how they see themselves. They mm -hmm. see themselves and, and economically, one can make the argument that a lot of Asian nations are not disempowered whatsoever globally. Sure. So the ways in which they're adopting, adapting, changing white culture to fit their needs, K-pop is itself, you know, obviously influenced very deeply by American hip hop, American yeah. rock and roll and, and, and music. So we're adapting and appropriating all the time. So this doesn't only work in one direction. When we think about appropriation, we might imagine it's like white Americans taking whatever they want. The reality <laughs> is everyone's taking everything. Right. Oh, is it not. damaging white people though when they, when people are taking their culture? I think is is that where it gets blurred? That is a great point. So um no, I mean, white people have done pretty well historically. <laughs> and they have a lot of cultural power and cachet. So any sort of negative press about white people can pretty much be drowned out by a lot of very positive press done by white people, you know, put out by white people. So historically, it doesn't have the same weight. You're right. Um, but you know, when we're thinking about uh, in Asia, like when, I find that um, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans have a very different relationship and, and understanding of appropriation than um, nationally born Japanese or Chinese or Koreans um, because they have different senses of empowerment within their own nations. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are a minority in America, if you're underrepresented in some way, you've grown up with just an entire lifetime of people looking at you askance and having very particular ideas about you. You know, I'm biracial, I'm, you know, half Chinese. The the image of the orientalist, submissive, you know, hypersexualized, you know, Asian woman has been with me my entire life. I mean, mm -hmm. men approach me based on that. So I recognize that these have really damaging um, effects. And so appropriation isn't just a sort of academic thing for me. I understand what the dissemination of these stereotypes means for people on an emotional level on a day-to-day -day basis. But if I lived in Asia, mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is I would be approached as a white woman there. <laughs> and I would be approached in some of the same ways, like their, their wow. idea of the hypersexualized <laughs> American woman, that she'll sleep with anything. And, you know, and so I recognize that that stereotype can cut a very different way too in another kind of country. We all stereotype each other and, and it's the recognition of this and the hopeful, the ways in which we can use appropriation weirdly to sometimes change these dynamics and change these narratives that interests me. I wanna go, I wanna bring it local because yeah. um, there was a story here. I think we're all familiar with this story that happened some years back of a girl wearing a prom dress. Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> and she was a Utah student. She wore, I think you can explain it better because you actually mentioned it in the book. I do. I'd um, love to hear that story and get your thoughts on that. So it's a young woman who's going to a prom um, and she decided to wear Chang Sam, which is what we might consider a, a traditional Chinese dress. It's also called a Chi Pao in the North. Um, and there's nothing wrong with wearing a Chang Sam. I would argue that 
you know, lots of people wear the Changsam. Mm -hmm. But she decided to start posing in this way that looked a little bit like she was in the musical The King and I, you know, doing this very <laughs> stereotypical bowing and oh, with no. a prayer position. And she just looked like she was parodying the country into the culture and, and burlesquing it and also getting it wrong because no one in China does that. Mm, so wow. she turned a dress not into a cultural artifact, which maybe all of us could wear and share, but into a cultural cultural you know, parody mm. to something that became about her ideas of Asianness itself. Mm -hmm. So I think a that's lot of That's where the controversy happened. That's where the controversy happened. It wasn't happens. as much the dress and the wearing it. Right. That would have been okay. That would have been fine. Most people, the it was the gestures. gestures, it was the behavior, it was, it was blackface. It's right, so much, Yeah, exactly. blackface, but, but, it, but some, so much of that comes from the, I think the media that she was exposed to, right. to the King and I, and to all of those stereotypical old school kind of movies and, and things that, that people at a young age, that's how they mm -hmm. gain some sense of understanding different cultures. Unless you're traveling all over the world when you're you know, a young adolescent, you don't know other than what you see. Exactly. And so that yeah. definition was really inappropriately put into yeah. her mind, and then she just followed suit. And that's... that. I, I wonder how she even got to the point where she decided to wear this dress. Who she thought this was a good idea? Yeah, that's sort of the tagline to the whole, who thought this was a good idea for all of it. And, and I think, but going back to your comment, which is so important here, which is that I, I think a lot of people in their ignorance, they think they're appreciating um, this culture. And this speaks to the powerful, powerful ways in which these stereotypes have ingrained themselves into mm. the culture. You, you know, when and the problems with appropriation too. I mean, I feel like I'm promoting appropriation, but this is a real problem where, you know, when we keep taking people's stories and performances and clothing and burlesquing them and making them into these kinds of stereotypes, and it becomes so repeated over and over and over again, people might just sort of thoughtless reach for the thing that they've seen and they're like, well, it must be good because I see it everywhere. Right. This must be true right. because I see it everywhere. It has to be acceptable. Everybody's doing Everybody's it. Everybody's doing it. Exactly. I have, I have a little question for you that's a, a kind of on topic, but maybe mm. you consider it off. I don't know. So what do you think about when someone, let's say, is doing a movie and the movies, let's say, is based in a certain country and the actor playing <laughs> that character puts on has, a terrible accent maybe yeah has nothing to do with that culture mm. or is has no heritage there do you feel like that's a form of appropriation where does that fall in this this whole thing you know i have to say i struggle with that because when i remember when ghost in the machine was coming out and then you know jo scarlett johansson is cast as an asian woman yeah. or you know you see you see this happen over, over over and over again in hollywood and you just go crazy you're like, <laughs> because representation is so tough. Yes, you, um, and you it couldn't matters. find an Asian actress. Not a single <laughs> right. one, right? Yeah. And, and it matters because the entire movie is filled with people who are white, and then the one character supposed to be Asian is also filled by a white person. But right. I also recognize that, um, that, that there is something to be they are actors. Right. And I think um, it does make me wonder, like, why am I comfortable with certain types of acting performances. So for instance, a straight actor playing somebody who's gay, mm. why am I more likely 
to accept that than say somebody who's going to try, you know, try to perform being from a different nation, right, and, you right, know, right. national well, I, identity. I think Matt Damon played uh, in, in a movie, uh, it was a while ago. <laughs> Do you know what I'm I know what you're about? talking about, it goes to the Great Wall. I think it's called the Great Wall or something. Yes, yes, the Great Wall. Yes, yes, yes. I was like, what yes. are you talking about? What is I know. <laughs> well, I, even just recently, what was it, the House of Gucci, where yes. all of them were performing with these bizarre and not even similar Italian accents. And I was like, if they were in Italy, they wouldn't have these accents. If they were truly playing Italians, they could just speak like themselves and mm. you just pretend that they were Italian. Like, why are they trying mm. to perform these kinds of, you <laughs> yeah. know, sort of, sort of cultural tics? And it, it struck me as um, absurd. And I, for a while, I couldn't even tell if the movie was meant to be a comedy. I was like, well, maybe this is supposed to be funny. It's just <laughs> not as funny as I think it is. I, I even get irritated when there's like black British actors yeah. playing, playing American, American parts. And I'm American. like, something sounds Something's funny. funny. Yeah. <laughs> something yeah. right. He well, said that word wrong. We wouldn't say it like that. Yeah. Well, and that's been a thing. A lot of leading men, uh, in, which would normally be traditionally American mm -hmm. hero types, you know, and this is, you know, white American heroes, you know, the, the great white male savior that's been, you know, kind of going on forever in America. And, but yet now they're casting like British actors, Australian mm -hmm. actors, and all of these other actors to come and play some of those roles. And I wonder if they feel like that's not fair. You know, if, if I wish there was a white man here to, <laughs> to speak up about What you're also getting to is the very uncomfortable truth around appropriation and acting in general, which is there's no actual unbreakable link between you and your culture and the products you produce, which means, you know, just because I'm biracial doesn't mean I'm going to produce the great biracial American novel. Hmm. Like it could be that someone's going to write about biracial identity who's white in a much more interesting way than I could do. Wow. And I think that's what makes it really, like when we're thinking about why cast this actor versus that actor, representation matters, yeah. but you also have to deal with the problem of talent, the mm. sticky problem of talent, which mm. is that someone might actually be yeah, able better. to interpret based on that dis dif difference and distance. And right. I have to say as an artist, um, as an as a scholar, I I'm much more conservative. But as an as an artist, I I'm much more liberal because I would rather risk having the bad representation, perhaps, and I would rather risk having the offensive gesture made than not to have the ability to see more talent, to mm. see more uh, interpretations, because it does also cut both ways, you know. You might have someone create a bad representation, but it also offers the opportunity for somebody who has been marginalized mm. to create an appropriative work mm. that speaks back to power and turns it around and, mm. in fact, you know, enters into this canon in ways that maybe they wouldn't have had access to except for yeah. being able to appropriate. So it's opening that dialogue up exactly. for, for uh, advancement of our cultural understanding. Right. And, we, and we don't have a lot of time because we've got to um, move on. But before we go, I want to get your, your opinion on, because we didn't touch on this in depth, which mm. is like hairstyles mm -hmm. and, and um, clothing. See, like, Dan and I were talking about this, and, and you know, with me, I personally don't have an issue with the hairstyle thing. It just depends on how it's how it's worn. But I'm curious to get your opinion on that, um, as far as whether you feel like, say, for example, a white woman wearing dreadlocks, mm -hmm. or you know, I am always I, I like shocked when I, I see good. an Asian woman with blonde hair. Yeah, it, it's it's shocking to me, and and I don't. I don't know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> you don't know what to think because is it self-hatred or is it appreciation or yeah. is it entering these, you know, when, when black women put in blonde, you know, dress exactly. as well. Yeah. And I remember reading an interview with one actress and she's like, we do this in order to show that we can do what you do and we can look better in it. And mm. I thought that that was an interesting statement, the idea of a kind of empowerment, which is that this is, you know, we can play with these kinds of hairstyles and, 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 and basically make it that we're, we're part of this conversation. We're not shut out from it. And in fact, like she said, we can look better at it. Um, it doesn't bother me, but I recognize why it does bother other people. But I do think, um, controversially, I guess, that I think we're in a place now where we might be so, I don't know, um, obsessed with ideas of authenticity and obsessed with ideas of individual subjectivity that we actually miss some of the benefits of a communal and a mm. global culture. I and, love that. And I think it's important to remind ourselves yeah. of that because, you know, there are things that also we can appreciate and share with each other that, that, that mean that we're not shut out from any kind of conversation. I love that. Mm. I, think, I think that uh, the collective wisdom is more valuable than individual preference. And, yeah. and, and we can use these art forms and these, these, these challenges that we face as opportunities to learn from each other yeah. and to grow and to become closer together instead of dividing ourselves. And I think that's kind of what this topic really is all about. Like, are we, are we becoming better at understanding each other and uniting, or are we just fractionalizing ourselves and, and, and saying that, oh, you know, th this has to stay in your lane kind of mm -hmm. thing. And, and, you know, that's the real challenge that we all have to face as individuals, whether you're an artist or not. And I think it all, again, boils down to just educating yourself on each other's culture. And we could start with Appropriate. <laughs> yes, please do. It's a wonderful book. Paisley, where can people get this book? Everywhere, just everywhere. But um, locally, the King's English Bookstore would be terrific if you ordered from them. Yes, King's English is a great store. I don't know That's if you've ever right. been there. It's up on 15th East, 15th South. Oh, it's great fantastic. little area there. It's, it's wonderful. It's been such a pleasure having you here. I want to give you the final word and uh, you know, kind of see us out about uh, what people should know about cultural appropriation. Well, thank you again so much. I really appreciate the time and attention. It's been a great conversation. Um, I guess I'm just trying to think about what I want people to know. I guess to stop being so afraid. I think that's the thing that people mm. are so afraid that they're going to offend people. And I think if you go in with the intention to educate yourself, you go in with the intention that you can always learn more and you go with the intention that if you do mess up, you can learn from that. Then appropriation is something that I think can only expand your own world. Mm. I love it. Love it. Awesome. It's been great having you, Paisley. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of Roots, Race and Culture. Check out our website for even more content, including interviews with some pretty dope BIPOC business owners. You can find all that in a bag of chips at pbsutah.org slash roots. And you'd be doing us a solid if you told all your friends about our show. But until next time, y'all, we are out. <laughs>